Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent, and Laura Noonan, our investment bank correspondent. Down the line from Parliament, we have John Mann, who is a Labour MP and member of the Treasury Select Committee. This week, we'll be discussing the latest news about the Financial Conduct Authority, the UK regulator, and why exactly it dropped, in a controversial way, a review of banking culture. We'll also be taking a look at Unicredit, Italy's biggest bank, and what the ructions there say about broader problems with European banking. Finally, we'll be hearing from our banking editor in the US on the latest developments in US banking. First, though, to that story about the FCA. Increasingly controversial, this story, which, Emma, you broke a couple of weeks ago that the FCA had dropped a planned review into culture at Britain's banks. Tell us where we've got to in this story, because there have been some new developments. The Financial Conduct Authority outlined last year that it was planning to conduct a review into bank culture within the UK, assessing both wholesale and retail banks across a number of issues such as pay and when staff air concerns and issues internally. But we uncovered on New Year's Eve that rather controversially, the FCA decided to drop this thematic review into UK banking culture which caused a lot of backlash from a number of quarters. Lots of MPs got involved, including Labour's John McDonnell, suggesting that there was quite a bit of influence from arguably the Treasury and other organisations. Yesterday, following a Freedom of Information request, the Financial Conduct Authority stated that it did not discuss its plans to drop the review with any other parties, namely the Prudential Regulation Authority, the Bank of England, the Treasury and any other organisations. However, in a new development, based on documents seen by the Financial Times, we've uncovered that, in fact, a senior official at the Bank of England has arguably played quite a key role in the decision to ditch the banking probe. A woman called Megan Butler, who's quite senior at the Bank of England's PRA, was seconded to the FCA at the start of September, shortly before the publication of an internal paper which outlined plans to ditch the cultural review. And to be clear, her involvement in that proposal was evident from the documentation. Exactly. So the documentation revealed that a number of people at the FCA had devised the plan and overseeing this and the ultimate decision was Megan Butler and another senior member on the executive committee at the FCA. So the paper which came shortly after her arrival at the FCA was ultimately overseen by her. So let me go on that note to John Mann. John, thank you very much for joining us. You're concerned about the specifics of this case, but also about the general trend that may be developing for a politicisation of the regulator. Give us your view on the latest developments. Well, there's clearly a politicisation. I mean, it's George Osborne, the Chancellor, um, who announced that the uh, interim chief executive, Tracy McDermott, had withdrawn her application. And, uh, you know, he announced it before anybody else knew that. And 
that's clearly not the right way around. That shouldn't be that level of political involvement in managerial matters, whether he makes the final decision or not. And that was, I think, a shock to people. But as well, what we're learning is that the moment that Martin Wheatley, the previous chief executive, left his desk on the 14th of September, and of course he was got rid of by George Osborne, quite openly, quite explicitly, the moment Martin Wheatley left, then there's a wholesale change on all the work streams within the FCA to do with culture. From September, there's no ambiguity. Everything is changing, and it's basically business as usual for the banks. It is the banks who will be looking after their own conduct and culture rather than the FCA intervening. Now, the specific involvement in this case, seemingly, of Megan Butler, who was seconded from the PRA into a senior role at the FCA and, as I said, was specifically mentioned as, I think, a co-sponsor is the term, on this FCA memo. What should happen in terms of your committee, the Treasury Select Committee? Should the TSC call Megan Butler to give evidence? Two people are responsible for this change are Jonathan Davidson and Megan Butler. And Megan Butler had been seconded. In fact, she only started work on the 1st of September at the FCA. She's been at the, and is at, the prudential regulator. And the prudential regulator is a big beneficiary of this change because, in essence, all the regulation goes through them now. So it's important she's called in front of the committee so we can see what her role has been and how much influence the PRA has had over the changes in the downgrading of the FCA. But in addition as well, I've discovered a major role being played externally by the former regulator, Sir Hector Sands, who of course left after the financial crisis, not necessarily with his reputation totally intact. But he's been working for a a company called Oliver Wyman, and they've been paid by the British Bankers Association to provide a concurrent report. And that has been part of the consultation process by the FCA. They have been in communication with Oliver Wyman as part of this process, which means Hector Sants, the previous regulator, and in his paper, which got covered in the FT alone, I believe the 13th of November in a small piece, but in the middle of his paper for the British bankers, he spells out what's needed in changing culture, and everything he was spelling out has been adopted by the regulator. So this is the banks calling the tune through their trade organisation, and the regulator bowing to this pressure with George Osborne smiling in the background. So should Sir Hector now be called before your committee as well? I think there's no question Sir Hector Sands ought to be called in front of the committee so we can see what his justification is for removing regulation and why it's appropriate now that he's representing the bankers that he totally changes his tune from the time he was regulator. He'd be an interesting and informative witness for the committee and I do hope that he'll be called. Have you suggested as much, either on Megan Butler or Sir Hector, to Andrew Chirey, the TSC chairman, yet? This is important.
process now. Okay. Well, thank you, John Mann, for your thoughts on all of that. Let me turn to Caroline Binamar, financial regulation correspondent, just for a word on your thoughts here on, on the FCA, particularly on the leadership, which, as John Mann mentioned is currently in the hands of Tracy McDermott, an acting CEO, but she, as we found out last week, through George Osborne initially, will no longer be a candidate for the ongoing CEO role. What should happen, do you think, or what is likely to happen? Yeah, it's been a pretty torrid fortnight for the FCA, all things considered. Not only have they had the political fallout in the wake of the dropping of this review, but it also comes amid quite a serious leadership crisis since Osborne, as you said, announced unexpectedly on the radio that Tracy McDermott was no longer interested in taking the top job full time. I think where both of those stories intersect is the issue about whether the FCA is taking too soft a stance on the city, particularly since Martin Wheatley was ousted, and whether George Osborne is in fact playing too influential a role in how regulation is set out and the strategy behind it. After all, this is meant to be the independent financial regulator. In terms of the leadership, what's happening is that a decision about who will replace Martin Wheatley full-time is meant to be taken over the coming weeks. I understand that two frontrunners are now in the race. That's Greg Medcraft from the Australian Regulator and then Mark Branson in Switzerland. The candidates, I understand, have interviewed, and that happened before Christmas, but they are yet to meet Mr Osborne. Interesting what you say about the political interference in the FCN. It's obviously not helpful for the PRA that they've seemingly become a conduit for that influence as well. Their reputation as independent well, is I th- crucial. I think obviously the PRA is part of the Bank of England, which the last Labour government made an independent policymaking institution. The PRA, though, if you speak generally to politicians in the city and other stakeholders, it does seem to have a bit more of a positive reputation. I think the comments that John Mann were making were quite interesting, not least because it sounds like there's a belief that the PRA might be beginning to land grab a little bit in terms of leveraging off that reputation and perhaps doing more of the traditional regulation that was the remit of the FCA. An ongoing theme, no doubt. Thanks for that. We should move on to our second topic for the day. Unicredit is in a bit of trouble or certainly going through a pretty turbulent time. Overnight, they sold off their Ukrainian business, which has been a drag on their performance for some time. One of the many Eastern European operations which they bought up in the boom times and have backfired in more recent times. But that's only part of the story. Laura, you've been looking at what's been going on, where they are in this whole saga. Yeah, so Unicredit announced a strategic plan in November and the hope of that plan was that if they were to cut costs, sell off some of their loss-making international operations, that they would be able to make the bank the kind of earner it once was. Unicredit was once one of Europe's most profitable banks. Now it has one of the highest cost-to-income ratios in Europe. Unfortunately for the bank, since they actually announced that plan, the shares have fallen a further 20%. They're now down 87% since their high in 2007. So I think it's fair to say investors are not convinced by the plan. Unicredit has a lot to execute. They have a lot to prove. So I think in that sense, it is definitely positive to see some of the sales, like the sale in the Ukraine, flowing through. But there are still some pretty major questions around Unicredit, particularly when it comes to dealing with its bad loans at home in Italy. And that's obviously piling pressure on Chief Executive Federico Gizzoni. I think some analysts are starting to say now this plan needs to bear fruit within the first quarter of this year. And for that to show up in results, 
otherwise the pressure on him could mount. Yeah, I think it's fair to say we are reaching a do or die point in terms of his overall leadership of the bank. I mean, he's been in charge of the bank since September 2010. So he's now had more than five years to really fix the bank. So in his earlier days, he was certainly very much able to blame the mounting losses, to blame the bad loans on the bank's previous management. But now he really should have gotten to grips with some of these issues. I think trying to see results in the first quarter of this year, realistically, the plan was only announced in November. I think people are going to have to be a little bit more patient than that if they want to have a reasonable assessment I think it would be fair to give him until around this time next year to see really has he managed to execute on this. Now of course Unicredit is far from unique in terms of going through the ringer both in terms of problems that Europe's banks more broadly face there being kind of new strategic plans announced across the board at a lot of the big European banks. How does Unicredit's, you mentioned the share price fall since the plan was announced, how does that compare with some of the other big strategic plans that we've heard announced over the past few months? Interestingly, actually, Unicredit isn't the worst. So if you look across the big European banks, in the last year we've had some big bank new plans from Credit Suisse, Standard Chartered and also Deutsche Bank. And those three banks, unlike Unicredit, those are all under new CEOs. So the worst performing plan so far has been the standard chartered plan. Shares in that bank have fallen 25.6%, give or take, since the new plan was announced at the start of November. Then if you look at the Deutsche Bank plan, shares in that bank have fallen just over 24% since that plan was announced at the end of October. And equally on the Credit Suisse side, shares in that bank are down 17.6% since that plan was also announced towards the middle of October. So I think it's fair to say all of these banks have definitely struggled in the aftermath of their strategic plan and their losses do all exceed the losses on the broader Eurostoxx Banks Index. Yes, I think it's fair to say that investors are sceptical about the feasibility of these plans. I think there's two aspects to it. On the one hand, there are investors who doubt whether these plans can actually actually be executed. We hear that a lot around the Credit Suisse plan in particular, which people see some of the assumptions around the revenue growth as being very ambitious. The other issue coming to the fore is that people were expecting some kind of a big solution, a big fix, the magic bullet idea. And I think if you look at all of these plans, investors were in large underwhelmed by them. So a lot of these shares would have seen a good rally into the plan because people hoped that there was some big solution and it just didn't come. So I think shares will have really struggled in the aftermath of that as well. Well, given the broader equity route that we've seen over the past week or so globally, largely caused by China, it's going to be hard to see banks like these rebound anytime soon, I suspect. Thank you for that, Laura. We should move on to our third and final segment, which is our report from Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor. And this week he's talking to his guest about robo-advice, that's automated financial advice. I'm Ben McClanahan in New York, and I'm here with Dan Egan, Director of Behavioural Finance and Investing at Betterment, which is the leading independent robo-advisor. Robo-advisors are automated investment services that manage your stocks and bonds for you. Customers fill out an online questionnaire about their income, their life goals, and their risk appetite. A piece of software then selects the best investments, often in various low-cost exchange-traded funds. Then it does all the work of managing, continually rebalancing the portfolios. And you tend to get all that for a fraction of the cost of a real-life wealth manager or financial advisor. Right now, these robo-advisors are a drop in the ocean, accounting for less than $100 billion of assets under management in a US market worth at least $30 trillion. But the robots could march to an AUM of $5 trillion to $7 trillion by 2025, accounting for about a fifth of the market, according to Deloitte. While companies such as Betterment and Wealthfront, that's another rival, have led the way, big shops like Deutsche Bank, Charles Schwab and Vanguard have launched copycat services, 
and Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch and Wells Fargo are reckoned to be not far behind. So Dan, what's driving all this growth? I think we're seeing a long, broad swath of society. We're seeing changes in the way that we communicate and the effects that that has upon um, family and social structures. We're seeing it in news mm-hmm. um, in terms of how new business models need to deal with the consumer's expectation of the fact that they can get news for free and the, the quality of that and also the shareability of that. We're likewise riding on the back of, I think, a large number of changes in terms of the quality uh, and access that the internet provides to the average consumer, a distaste for hidden fees and broken promises amongst existing asset managers, and a desire to have a more delightful experience when it comes to managing your money. I think that all three of those things coalesce into people seeing that there is a better way to get good independent financial advice, uh, and we're providing it. Okay. And how is your fee structure surviving uh, the onslaught of competition, particularly from the bigger guys? Very well. Uh, I would say that our consumers generally regard our fees as more than fair. They're quite low. Um, and they recognize the fact that they need to be paying us in order for us to be a true advisor. Uh, this is something that is really going to be in 2016 a watershed year here in the U.S. with the Department of Labor's fiduciary regulations, yeah. where you have to take the client's best interest into heart. This is a very uh, much higher, much, much stricter standard than the suitability law, which says as long as it's not horribly wrong, you can sell it to them. Um, Betterment has, from the very first, been a fiduciary um, registered investment advisor. Um, it is independent. We don't make money from funds or from the transaction costs that customers have to us. We have always had our customers' best interests at heart. And I think that paying a very reasonable fee, our fees start at 0.35% for customer balances beneath $10,000. It's then 0.25% for $10,000 up to $100,000 and 0.15% for balances above $100,000. Those are incredibly low, but they ensure that you're getting advice where the advisor is held responsible to you, not to third parties that they're actually getting paid by, which mm-hmm. is been a, a long-standing problem in the finance industry. And just compare that 0.35% uh, against the, the typical actively managed fund by a human being. What, what, what kind of figures it's, are we talking about? Uh, it, it's actually quite scary. I saw um, you know, the average fee for a mutual fund inside of a 401k um, is about 80 basis points, so 0.8%. So on the order of about uh, two to three times as much as we charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're paying for usually underperformance of that mutual fund, both due to the lack of ability to meet the market, but also those higher fees. And just finally, on the uh, the, the growth of Betterman's and others, uh, much of that growth has come in a, I think you guys were founded five years ago, in, in a very gently rising market in which people have been happy uh, to be guided by, by robots, by software. But 2016, has begun on the wrong foot as the worst start of the year for a long time. Um, how are customers responding? What kind of flows are you seeing? Mm. Are, are they looking to get the advice from a human being rather than a... This is a, uh, a more than perennial favorite because actually uh, Betterment has been around long enough that it's been through multiple drawdowns of more than 10% in the S&P 500, usually considered a correction in a point in time where most advisors be- believe they begin to start earning their money in terms of helping out client behavior. And indeed, when you look at sort of what is a a historically normal set of drawdowns, something in the nature of 10 to 20% is where you 
want to prevent people from taking their money out um, and not reacting to things. And yet you're not going to get yourself into the sort of drawdowns that we have from 2008 or 1929, the really, really huge drawdowns. So having been through a number of these things, we've number one, never stopped growing. There has not been a single day that we have ended up with less AUM because of customer withdrawals than deposits through any of these markets. And in fact, we've been able to harness what's happening during these drawdowns to actually make it a growth opportunity. Um, and I think that comes from a couple of key actions that we take. Number one, Betterment is a goal-based advisory service. And if you say that you want to have $100,000 for a house down payment in four years, and you, you know, we say, great, you're going to need to save $300 a month in order to achieve that, combined with market growth, has a good chance of getting you there. And then at some point, you hit a bump in the road, the market goes down. We're going to say, listen, unfortunately, you've been knocked off track. If you do a quick top up, say add an additional $200 this month, you're going to be back on track with market growth again. Thank you very much, Dan Egan of Betterment. That's it for this week. All that's left to do is to thank Caroline, Laura and Emma here in London, Ben and his guest in New York, and also John Mann MP for talking to us down the line from Westminster. Thank you also for listening. And remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Simon, until next week, goodbye.